Good morning, I'm A.T. Stoddard, also one of the elders here, and for those of you who are visiting, you may not be aware, our uh, Pastor John is on a sabbatical from preaching, and so we have others of us filling in each Sunday while he is concentrating on some study. Um, he's not away, obviously, he's still very active in the church, but a chance to focus on some other things rather than preparing a sermon each week. This morning, our text is from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 6. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Please join me in prayer. Father, as we look at your word today, speak to us. Lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. If you have been at JVC for any length of time, you're used to having sermon illustrations from the military, specifically the Marines. Some of you know I also served in the military, but not in the Marines. I was in the Air Force. You might say, a higher force. <laughs> I didn't fly, but was in an engineering unit that supported that flying mission. Our engineering squadron was very diverse. We had people who were trained in all kinds of skills, from electricians to plumbers to heavy equipment operators. But more than that, we had people from all kinds of backgrounds different ethnicities, different primary languages, different levels of education from high school graduates to those with degrees in engineering, some with combat experience, others with no experience. We had a wide range of opinions on many issues, yet as a unit, we focused on accomplishing our mission. We could not let those differences divide us or interfere with what we had to accomplish. This was true in our, our daily today efforts to support the flying mission, but I also saw it in a number of specific experiences, including recovery following a, a hurricane. Everyone worked together. There were occasions when we had someone who would create division or interfere with accomplishing our mission. In those cases, those individuals were disciplined or moved to a position where they could no longer interfere with the operations of our unit. To be effective, we had to be united in our efforts without divisions that would detract from accomplishing our goals. We're going through a series of sermons on the supplies to support our journey to know Christ. Last week, we looked at joy and how we as Christians may rejoice in the hard times. Today we are looking at unity. 
just as a military unit or a sports team has to be unified in their purpose, we as a church need to be unified. Our unity is to be in the true gospel of Jesus Christ. In our passage we read today, Paul gives a warning about false doctrine or a different gospel, false teaching. He tells us the consequences of a different gospel. And he gives us the promise of a true gospel. So we will look at these three things. First, Paul's warning, the consequences of false doctrine, and the hope of the gospel. First, Paul's warning. Paul tells us to beware of false or different doctrines in verses 3 and 4. He actually started this letter to Timothy with similar instructions in verse 3 of chapter 1. Paul told Timothy to stay in Ephesus so that he may command certain men not to teach false doctrine. In verses 4 and 5 of our passage, he gives more explanation about those who teach false doctrine. These are the, the only two places, chapter 1 and our text in 6, where this word is used for a false or different doctrine in the New Testament. If we are going to be able to recognize a different doctrine, we must first know true doctrine. Paul tells us what that is. He says, the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ. The doctrine of Jesus Christ is the gospel. We are born with a sinful nature and we need a savior. In Psalm 51, David says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Paul tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are condemned by God for that sin. But the gospel includes good news for the world. Probably most familiar may be John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We just looked at Romans 3.23, but Paul continues in verse 24 to say that sinners are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justification is the act of God to pardon all our sins and declare us righteous in his sight. Our acceptance with God is only because of what Christ has done and what he accomplished through his death on the cross and his resurrection. During the Reformation, this was summarized in a way that I think should be easy for us to comprehend and to remember, we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Anything that would add to that or take away from that is a false doctrine, a different gospel. 
We must all know the true doctrine of the gospel. We must be able to discern godly teaching that conforms to the true gospel and teaching that is contrary to the gospel. First and foremost, that means we must study what scripture teaches. I think we are also fortunate because we have others who have gone before us, men who studied and knew scripture and have provided summaries for us. We can benefit from their extensive study of God's word. It's good to study and know biblical creedal statements. We need to remember they are not God's word, but they can help us understand God's word. We use different historic creeds for our corporate reading. Often we'll use the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed from the early church. We've been working our way through the Athanasian Creed, uh, which gives a, a clear, detailed statement of the true gospel. It was written about 1,700 years ago. But today we read together, now this is the true faith. In our church, we consider the Westminster Confession and Catechisms to be accurate statements of what the Bible teaches. In short sections, we have summaries of biblical teaching. If you're interested in digging deeper, I'd recommend reading the Canons of Dort, which are also written during the, the Reformation, to refute specific errors, but they give a clear statement of the truths of the gospel. The true doctrine of the gospel is, we are sinners, condemned by God, but saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Knowing the true gospel, then stand firm against any different doctrine, any different gospel. We must draw that line in the sand where we will not compromise on the gospel. We cannot compromise on anything that would either add to or take away from the completed, finished work of Christ. However, we also must be careful to discern what is a different gospel and what may be a minor point. Right? We are united with our Christian brothers and sisters everywhere throughout the world. We often pray for and talk about our Baptist brethren in churches in Kenya. We are united with those churches. We have some differences. Over baptism is one. We baptize infants, they don't. Yet, our views do not differ from the true gospel. We recognize each other as true believers and we have Christian fellowship. We must be willing to accept that others may have some different beliefs on less important points, but still hold to the true gospel. We cannot draw that line in the sand where scripture does not divide us. We are to have unity, not uniformity. Paul warns us about the false doctrine, and then he goes on to tell us some of the consequences, our second consideration today, the consequences of false doctrine. In verse 4, Paul tells us those who advocate a different gospel or teaching are conceited. Now, why does he say that? 
Those who proclaim a false doctrine are claiming to know more about the gospel than Jesus himself. Let that sink in. They claim to know more about the gospel than does Jesus. And Paul goes on to say they understand nothing. But without an understanding of the true gospel, a person really cannot understand anything else. The gospel is the heart of the Bible. And the Bible tells us God's work throughout history. All of life must be seen against the truth of the gospel. And he goes on to tell us that different or false doctrines lead to controversies and disputes. Those who teach a different doctrine undermine the truth of the gospel. It doesn't take long for this to lead to disputes over words. Our disputes can quickly lead to envy and strife. Paul had to address, address strife in the church and other letters. In Galatians, he addressed those who were insisting on following Jewish laws. In Philippians, he addressed strife by false teaching and controversies within the church. To the Corinthians, he addressed the lack of discipline within the church. And we just finished a series in Colossians where Paul told them to not be deluded with plausible arguments, to not be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Strife then leads to abusive language and evil suspicions. I think we see that around us every day. We live in an age where there is so much effort to divide. Our identity has become a major focus in our culture. What is your identity? How do you identify? What are your preferred pronouns? As Christians, our identity should be in Christ. There really are only two identities. You are either in Christ or you are not in Christ. Those really are the only two identities that have any meaning for eternity. Paul writes in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. People are very quick to take offense over just the most minor differences. You can commit a microaggression without having any idea of what you may have done. I think I read almost daily of someone being penalized for offending someone over some minor issue. In politics, we've reached a point where there is no discussion, no debate. Everything is deteriorated into abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction. But don't think these things are only in the culture around us. There are often divisions within the church over minor issues. These may not start as false teaching, but they usually indicate a weak understanding of the true gospel. Let me give you a couple of examples. We have, we have windows on the sides of our sanctuary here. Should we have blinds or curtains on the windows? Right now we don't have either, but if we had curtains, what color should they be? Should we argue over that? If we have blinds, should they be up so you can see out during worship? Or should we close them so you can't see out during worship? What about carpet? Fortunately, we don't have carpet on the floor here, so we can't argue over the color of that carpet. But 
Maybe we could argue over the chairs. We've got blue, but should they be burgundy or beige instead of blue? How many people leave a church because they don't like the style of music? Is that biblical? Do these things seem petty? Well, let me share an example from my own family. My dad was a pastor as I was growing up, and in his 60s, he rode his bike across the country. And while he did that, he grew a beard. And he decided he would keep it for a while when he came back. And he was then informed by a member of the church that their family would no longer give any financial to the support to the church until he shaved his beard. Now, there was a bit of stubbornness in my family. I'm not sure it's there anymore. <laughs> but he decided he was going to keep the beard longer than he originally intended to. And I can't find anything in the Bible that says it's a sin to grow a beard, right? nor to not have a beard. Right? That is pretty irrelevant to the gospel. And I say, do, do any of these things, these examples, relate to the true gospel? Or do they just distract us from the gospel and our mission to proclaim that gospel and make disciples? We are to put aside the differences that are not questions of the gospel. Paul speaks to this in, in other passages. He told Titus to avoid foolish controversies. In 2 Timothy, he tells Timothy not to quarrel about words, not to have anything to do with foolish controversies. When we have disputes or arguments over minor things, we detract from the gospel. We direct our energy at best to things that are inconsequential and at worst to things that undermine the gospel. I really like what uh, Pastor Alistair Begg has to say. It's quoting from him. The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And Paul, going on, even tells us that people begin to think that a pretense of godliness will bring them gain. He goes on to speak of monetary gain in the verses following our passage. But first he speaks of great gain, which is the hope of the gospel. This is our third point, the hope of the true gospel. In verse 6, Paul tells us that godliness with contentment is great gain. This follows right after he talks about men of a corrupt mind who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. So what is he telling us? First, he says that thinking godliness is a means to financial gain comes from a corrupt mind, and then he says godliness is great gain. How is that? Well, he is contrasting those who teach a different doctrine but make a show of religious activity with those who follow the true gospel and live a gospel-centered life. The gospel-centered life is joined with contentment. The ability to rejoice in times of trial, as we heard last week. Content with the circumstances where God has placed you. Content to look forward to what God is doing in those circumstances. We often don't know what God is doing in the heat of the moment, but we can be content and rejoice 
knowing that God is working in our lives for our good and for his glory. So what does gospel-centered life look like? I would encourage you, if you have a Bible, to just turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. I'm not going to read the full passage, but I want to point out several things that Paul wrote to the Philippians. He wrote to them because there were divisions and strife within the church. And he begins his letter by talking about the gospel. He uses the word gospel six times just in chapter 1. But I want to look at Philippians 1, 27 and 28, where he writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the, the gospel. That is the New International Version and the English Standard Version. Is let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Paul is saying that in all of life, we are to live in a way that is worthy of and proclaims the gospel. This means day in, day out, every day, in every way. I've not studied Greek, but there are a couple words here that I think are worth really looking at to help us understand what Paul is saying. First, Paul wants to hear that the Philippians are standing firm. And the, the illustration comes really from the military. The picture here is that of a unit in combat holding the line. If you're familiar with Civil War history, I think this is like Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg. The Confederate Army, over 12,000 men, advanced three-quarters of a mile across an open field under heavy Union rifle and artillery fire toward the Union line on Cemetery Ridge. Although they suffered 50% casualties, the Confederate Army continued the advance. They reached the line, broke through it, as was now called the Bloody Angle, because of the intensity of the battle. And the Union Army quickly closed that line to hold the position. They stood fast. That site has now become known as the high watermark of the Confederacy. Lee and his army retreated back to Virginia the next day, and the, the war was effectively lost at that point, even though it continued for another year. Paul wants to know the Philippians are standing fast, holding the line for the gospel of Christ. We also need to stand fast, holding the line for the gospel of Christ. This is where we need to draw the line and defend it. We can't do it alone. Just like the Union Army at Gettysburg, we need to stand together. We need to support one another. We need to fill the gap when one of us is injured in the battle. We need to be united in the true gospel. But Paul doesn't stop there. He wants to know the Philippians are striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel. And Paul uses the word athleo. We need, that's a Greek word we can easily recognize. Right? We need to be like an athletic team, united on achieving the goal. We cannot allow ourselves to be distracted by less important things. I find it's always entertaining to, to watch young children playing team sports. 
<clears throat> some are easily distracted, maybe looking at a bird, uh, their parents, a bug crawling on the ground, you know, anything except what's happening in the game. But how easy it is for us also to be distracted by lesser things, to allow minor disputes to become important and keep us from advancing the, the gospel. We need to stay in the game with our hearts and minds focused. And then Paul goes on in, in Philippians to help us understand how we can remain focused on the gospel. In Philippians chapter two, the first four verses, he writes, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if you have any fellowship and compassion, he doesn't say if you are complete or mature in any of these, it's rhetorical. He says, if you have any of these, we are united with Christ. His love does comfort us. We do have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. He says, if you have any of these, then be like-minded, one in spirit and purpose. And then he goes on to tell us how to do this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Look to the interests of others. He goes on in the following verses to tell us how we should have the same attitude as Christ. And I would encourage you to maybe read Philippians 1 and 2 this afternoon to see how Paul lays that out. Brothers and sisters, the, the key to unity in a gospel-centered life is humility. We need to be humble before God and with one another. Humility before God will keep us from false teaching. Humility toward one another will keep us focused on the gospel and away from those distracting disputes and quarrels. And the gospel-centered life is not just for pastors and church leaders. We are all to be united in living a gospel-centered life. As we seek to live a gospel-centered life, our church has identified milestones to help us focus on our journey together, united in the gospel. Are we worshiping, not just here on Sunday, but throughout the day and throughout the week? Are we praying for one another, for the advance of the gospel, for protection from false teaching, to keep us from distracting disputes? Are we sharing our resources? Are we discipling one another and our children? Jordan Valley Church, stand firm, united against false teaching and distracting disputes. Strive together, united for the faith of the gospel. Let us pray. Father, I ask that you would work through your spirit in our lives, that we would be wholeheartedly committed to the truth of the gospel, that we would be able to set aside those things that detract us from the work of the gospel, from spreading the good news of your son, Jesus Christ, and what he has done. We pray that we would be humble before you and before one another to consider others better than ourselves. And as a church that we might strive together, standing for the truth of the gospel. For we pray this in your son's name. Amen.